Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legvold. Hello again and welcome to Beneath the Wing. Joining me today is Tyson Schnitker, former member of the 133rd Medical Group. Today's a big first for the podcast because I'm interviewing a guy who came in, served for a while, and then left our ranks completely for productive and hopefully happy civilian life. In fact, I think it really highlights an awesome story of so many men and women who join the military, serve their country with distinction and honor, and then bring the great stuff that they've learned to us in a productive place outside of uniform. So Tyson, thanks for joining me. No problem. Thank you very much. I've... Uh, I'm also coming to you all on location. I'm at Scalvin Distillery in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. And we're going to get to uh, why that's important in just a, just a bit. But we're sitting in this 1980s kind of retro in front of an old tube type TV. And you've created a great environment here. Thank you. Um, so I mentioned your past military service. Let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, you had a rich experience in the military, both Army and Air. What brought you into service in the Army, and how did you end up going blue? Um, I guess first, just you know, disclaimer, since we are on location, if there's any noise in the background, it's uh, just people working uh, or stuff going wrong. Um, but what led me into it is that it, joining the Army is, is something that I had always wanted to do ever since I was a little kid. You know, went into the woods and, and played Army. Um, my my family has an extremely long uh, history in the United States Army, uh, dating back to uh, one of my earliest ancestors came from Norway, uh, in, enlisted in the Minnesota Volunteer Infantry, and then fought on uh, at uh, Gettysburg uh, for the you know the North. Um, obviously, they took you know heavy losses, everything. But um, we've had uh, people in the the Civil War. Uh, people in uh, I've got a, a great uncle that uh, died on. Just a couple of days before the end of World War One, um, I've got uh, a couple of relatives that uh, unfortunately didn't make it through World War Two. Uh, few that did. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side was a, uh, a combat medic with the Army, uh, served uh, in Normandy on Omaha Beach. Uh, he didn't talk about it very much at all. I remember a couple of stories from him when I was too young to, I guess, truly grasp what he had seen. And I think even at my age, I be unable to grasp what he had seen. Uh, my father served uh, for four years back in the 60s. My uncle was in the 82nd Airborne, made a career out of that. He was in uh, Desert Storm. Um, I don't believe he deployed uh, in the, the second uh, Gulf War. Uh, and then I'm the only person of my generation that has served and I, I think it kind of unfortunately ends at that and so i'd always wanted to serve but when i was in high school i was an idiot uh, just a bad misguided student um hanging with the wrong crowd thought i wanted the wrong things in life and so i didn't enlist i decided i wanted to go into it and make a bunch of money well i hated it and then 9 11 happened and the dot-com crash and i went into construction i uh, thought about enlisting you know the night of 9 11 but you know it was uh too i guess too weak too you know scared of of just doing it um and then went into construction then went into sales uh did well at sales but was rather miserable at home. Um, my, who now is my wife, we've been dating since 99 and in, in high school. Uh, and in 2007, you know, our relationship was kind of in shambles and I hated my job for the most part, kind of hated my life and just had this uh, office space realization one day where, you know, just has this life-changing experience. And I remember standing outside and seeing a, a Blackhawk flying overhead with the, the, the cross on the side of it. I'm like, that guy or the crew has is, is got the coolest job. Number one, they could fly around in a helicopter all day. That is pretty cool, isn't it? How awesome is that? Yeah. 
Uh, but number two, it's that that gentleman up there, assuming it's a male, makes the difference, or potentially makes a difference between someone going home in a bag and someone going home to their family. Um, you kind of had that tie with one of your family members that was a medic. Correct, right? and, and my uncle that served in the 82nd was a, was a medic as yep. well, so kind of a, a long history of that. Okay. Um, and I just decided that I hate my job, I hate where I am in life. Uh, whether or not my, my wife Mary, a girlfriend at the time, whether or not we work out, I'm going to do what I always wanted to do in life. I'm joining the Army. And I was looking at, you know, because our relationship was in a little bit of shambles, and uh, I was looking at joining, you know, full-time active Army and, and going to be a medic. And eventually, you know, Mary and I were working things out as I was kind of making that choice and had, uh, landed with the, the Minnesota National Guard. And I remember going up to my, my boss at the, the car dealership, and I said, Tori, I'm thinking about quitting and he's like well, what you know use some expletives and uh you know what the f are you gonna do i'm like i'm gonna join the army he's like bs go back out there and sell a car that'll make you feel better and mm -hmm. and i did and then uh about a day or two later i went back i'm like yeah I, I think i'm done uh i just you know just enlisted and uh um, yeah, got the, the last things I was, you know, delayed entry program. I delayed my, my actual, you know, leaving for basic by about five or six months. Gave me time to just get, you know, some of my personal affairs. We had a house together. It was 2007. Uh, this was, uh, the decision was made late 2007 and I sure. enlisted, uh, almost, uh, 14 years ago, uh, in, uh, early January, 2008. Got it. Um, and you know, got all my you know, sold my cars and sold anything that was just a basically a material thing that I didn't need. Uh, just complete reset. Uh, went off to basic training, which was a you know, for being 20, 28 at the time, I believe. Um, you know, it's that's a major life change. It's a major uh, life change, and you were an you old know, man when you showed up to basic oh, yeah. training, were not you? You know, I, my my girlfriend and I we bought our house when we were twenty two. And, you know, I, I moved out of, well, I got kicked out of my, uh, my dad's house when I, when I, I think on my 18th birthday, and rightfully so. Happy birthday. Um, thanks. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was much, much deserved. Um, and, you know, been, been out on my own, um, been in for myself uh, for that time. And then, you know, that I'm going to basic training tomorrow. I'm going, okay, I'm, I'm at basic training, like, you know, you know, uh, this is you know this is weird um so you went from hating your life correct to army basic training yeah just from Which hating life and being and following money um and thinking that money and getting more of it was going to make me happy and i decided to start following what i wanted to do in life instead um and yeah, went to started off uh, down at uh, Fort uh, Leonard Wood in, in Missouri for reception, and then they formed a bunch of us up and uh, separated some of us out. And we're like, hey, you guys, uh, you know, you're starting basic training in a day or two, and they're like, yeah, hey, cool. And they're like, yeah, you're going down to Fort Benning, Georgia, you know, home of the infantry. And a bunch of people are like, oh crap, I don't want to go to Fort Benning. It's supposed to be hard. And I'm like, bring it. Like, yeah. you know, I want, I want the full army experience of i don't want you know you know i i know basic training back in the 80s was probably harder than basic training in the 90s uh which was uh um harder than uh, basic training in the um um you know 2000s all that but i wanted you know the the best experience and, and fort benning gave me that it was all male at at the time uh which i i very much enjoyed um and i am perfectly fine with with females in the military um the nice thing with that was is that there was zero distractions from you know the mission mission was to train um you know the, the especially the young guys that are you know there to you know impress other people and, yeah. and females they didn't have that distraction i did see a lot of people change when we went to fort sam for for medic school um but uh you know just that a unit without distractions was was really cool and and obviously times change and i i, I get that and, and so you you went through all that training yep fort sam houston in texas that's correct. where you did your medical training correct then you came back to minnesota and were 
a part of the uh, Army National Guard. Correct. correct. I was with the uh, one of the one two five field artillery down in New Ulm, and beautiful so, New Ulm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I was either down in New Ulm uh, doing training or up at up at Camp Ripley, and I fell in love with with Camp Ripley. Kind of a love hate relationship, depending upon the the exact day. Um, but that was, and I, I got a job in healthcare on the the, the civilian side. I worked as, as kind of a, a lead uh, medical person right underneath a physician at a, a plasma center, a job I was, I was very much underqualified for on paper, but uh, uh, they gave me a great opportunity based upon my military experience and how I interviewed. And I right. have the military to credit for that. I was uh, being paid well above my pay grade for just an EMT. Um, Deploy with the Army? I did. I went to Kuwait in uh, 11 and 12. That was an interesting experience, just a lead up to that. Um, I always wanted to deploy to war, uh, whether or not I truly would have enjoyed it or not. Um, uh, obviously, individual experiences may vary, but I always felt like I wanted to do something. Um, and originally, we were supposed to go to uh, Iraq, and then that was changed to Afghanistan, and we were supposed to be doing a field artillery mission. It was supposed to be cool. We were supposed to be doing uh, what's called the uh, the Triple Eights, which is uh, uh, basically a howitzer uh, that's a tow behind. And we were supposed to be doing that, like basically shelling uh, the uh, the Taliban. And you were a medic attached to that unit. Correct. Right? And yep. I was went and tried to be out in the field blowing stuff up with the with the guys. Um, more than like in an aid station. I never cared for aid station life. I liked being outside and blowing stuff up and getting paid for it. Um, One of the then, things I learned about you while we were sitting here before the podcast actually started is you're not a sitter stiller. No. Yeah. No, I like I like doing stuff. When I was with the field artillery, so we, uh, uh, it was a M109 Paladin was our platform. What that is for the listeners, it's a self-propelled, so it's a tracked artillery piece. It's all armored, all self-enclosed. Basically, it's a tank with an even bigger gun on it. Uh, usually meant to shell stuff at up to 12 miles away uh, to drop a 95 pound projectile that's the bullet that actually leaves the the tube is 95 pounds and that's got to be can, impressive to be around when it, it goes off it's impressive on both sides both yeah. to be you know in it when it fires to yeah. be near it when it fires and to uh to be at the observation point watching the the impacts come in is is super cool and the accuracy of it is is absolutely amazing uh, and you're not going to drop one on a car from 12 miles away, but you're going to be able to, uh, after you get it uh, a couple of rounds out of the tube and get it, you know, uh, the rounds walked into where you need them, uh, you definitely wouldn't want to be anywhere near no. uh, where a, a Ford Observer is able to uh, to see you and direct rounds on. And that was really impressive. And I spent a lot of my time in, um, in uh, we, we, you know, called a big artillery piece as a gun, um, you know, in the gun. And I'd be helping sling routes. I'd be helping fire, uh, um, fire the unit. And I remember one time a, you know, a major sergeant major came out, and he's like, "Well, where's the medic at? Why isn't he in his ambulance? Oh, he's in one of the, he's in one of the guns." And he comes in. He's like, "You know, you know, I think I was a specialist at the time. He's a specialist. Well, what are you doing in here?" I'm like, "Helping send, uh, helping blow stuff up, right?" <laughs> like, "Well, what are you going to do if something goes wrong?" And I told him like, "Hey, sergeant major, if something goes." Something goes wrong with one of these. The amount of powder and explosives we have in here, there's, there's nothing to do. <laughs> you know, I, I might as well have fun uh, being with the guys. But yeah, we we deployed to Kuwait in 2011, um, and uh, my unit was part of uh, the Anoka, uh, which was a detachment from the rest of the battalion. Uh, so the rest of the battalion and the battalions like you know basically a company of a uh, group of like you know 500 or thousand uh, uh, soldiers. Um, and a company is more like, you know, 30 to 50. And so my company was uh, up at uh, Camp Arifjan, which is the biggest base in Kuwait. And then the rest of the battalion was at uh, a tiny little base uh, called Camp Patriot, which was inside a Kuwaiti naval base. Um, and they ran kind of the entire show there. And it was really nice being up at that bigger base uh, because we did. Uh, we were QRF there, and what that is, quick reaction force, which is we'd go do patrols in our armored Humvees with sure. you know all of our rifles and ammo and stuff, which we thankfully never had to use. Um, doing patrols and responding to anything um, you know that was perceived as a threat to the base, um, and the rest of our brass and everything was down at you know that uh, Kuwaiti naval base, uh, Camp Patriot, and the brass not necessarily being the thing that you make. Uh, 
light bulb or light socket. Exactly. Your your higher rank, which higher rank, uh, no offense, are are known for kind of going around and uh, we'll just put it this way of enforcing the standard, um, making sure people are supposed to be doing the right thing, um, and being away from that. And usually that enforcement, unless you're like completely wrong, doesn't come from other units. They just, you know, you're not one of their guys, so they don't discipline you um, unless you're absolutely completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it was a little bit relaxing. I was up there. I was a medic for 67 guys. Just enough to stay within the boundaries of acceptable. Right? Correct. Yeah. Um, and so I was a medic for 67, uh, 67 guys up there. Um, the only medic for 67? Uh, we had a, another medic who, um, unfortunately for that gentleman, just kind of didn't make the cut. He was technically a medic, but uh, he was the radio operator in the uh, operation center at night. All right. Um, and I was referred to as, as Doc. Uh, it's one thing in the Army. Once you're accepted by your Joes and they trust you, they start calling you Doc. Uh, which you're definitely not a doctor, um, but it's a it's a term of respect sure. um, that I, I meant a lot to me. In the Air Force, unfortunately, you don't don't get as much of that because you're not, you know, you don't have that, you know, in deep with your Joes, um, and you know. But I was I was there if something went wrong, which occasionally did, and usually it was something you know pretty minor due to you know sports related accidents or something. But you know, hey, you know, go get Doc. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, that's who I was. They'd, you know, come bother me just about any hour of the day for whatever. I remember one time a guy woke me up because he was wondering if he had athlete's foot. You know, just... middle of the night. That yeah. Might be an um, that didn't go over well. But uh... so look, you rounded out the deployment. Correct. Got home in uh, May of 2012. Okay. Um, started uh, decided uh, I worked uh, volunteered under a dermatology PA uh, while I was on deployment uh, who let me do a lot of his surgical like minor surgical procedures removing skin tags ingrown toenails uh, doing biopsies um, you know some actually pretty pretty in-depth stuff for being just an EMTB on the civilian side yeah and I really enjoyed that my wife does skincare she's an esthetician and I thought well I always wanted to open up my own business, didn't know what I wanted to do, and said maybe we open up a skincare practice, and I'm the, you know, the PA, and, you know, she does kind of everything else, and maybe we make a career out of it. So I started going to community college to knock out my generals, sure. to then in thoughts of eventually becoming a, a physician's assistant, and long, long story short is that the idea to start a distillery just popped into my head, and I had all my deployment savings. Um, I think I had... Forty-five, fifty thousand dollars saved up in the the bank, which is not a, a lot of money, but it is. Um, and I was going to use that all for you know school and like, well, I can either use that and start a business at the right time before all the other big players get into it. Basically, like you know, the chance of being ground floor making money on eBay. Uh, there's still money to be made on eBay. It's just a lot more difficult than sure. it used to be. And um, let me ask so you I a quick to question quit school and while you're there. Do that. Go ahead. You almost had a guaranteed, super stable, easy income with a lot of hard school before it. And then there's this where we're sitting that is full of risk. Really good question. Where, um, where, how did you get there? I make some dumb decisions sometimes. <laughs> uh, I, I always say opening a distillery is one of the dumbest things I've ever done. Um, did it work out? Yes. Uh, so far, knock on wood. Um, well, was it luck? Yeah, luck, hard work, right timing, uh, which go, plays into luck. Um, yeah, I, I do not dismiss luck one bit. Um, you know, I, I met my wife. I'd known about her. We lived down the block from her. Uh, I was a, a bad student in high school, and I got kicked out of class uh, from his Russian studies class. I got kicked out of class. I was sitting in the hallway, and then my wife, uh, we, we took a bunch of photography classes that we were in together. We just never talked, and I wasn't in this class, and she just happened to be walking by. She's like, hey, Tyson, why aren't you in this photography class? You were always good. Why aren't you in this? I'm like, I didn't know it existed. It was yearbook. Um, 
And, you know, it's the beginning of semester, so I walked down to the counselor's office and uh, uh, managed to, you know, change and then join that class. And my wife and I started meeting. It was pure luck. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes work, luck works out for you in the better, sometimes in the worst. And, uh, you know, it definitely helped with starting the company. Um, it just felt right. I started getting interested in it. Uh, um, I'd been making like an aged cocktail and, sure. and uh, uh, laws said, if you are going to you know, sell this commercially, you need to be a distillery. And I just started going down that path and generating more interest in it and said, eh, this is the, I think this is the right time. That's about um, the same time that you switched from the green to the blue. Also. Correct. So in, uh, in 2013, this would have been 13 when I was really, you know, starting to get serious about starting a distillery. Yeah. Um, and I was still with the army and the army was my last unit had, uh, unfortunately one thing, uh, you have in the military that you also have in the civilian sector too, is that you can have like, you know, good leaders uh, of some of my best bosses in the world have been in the military and some of my worst bosses in the world have been in the military. Um, and so I had a couple, a couple of the worst ones in, in the army at the time. Um, and that was making life tough, but also the Army's uh, uh, what referred to as the op tempo, basically operational tempo, which is, you know, National Guard's supposed to be two weekends a month, two weeks a year. We all know that's a little bit of a joke. Um, you know, sometimes you get some three-day drills and like a once-a-year, four-day drill sometimes. Uh, well, the Army was basically three-day drills was the norm, and then four-day drills was starting to become the norm, as well as your two weeks of annual training, plus, oh, we're going to send you for a week here, a week there, a week there. And the training and, and the studying off time. And, and constantly being up yeah. at Camp Ripley while I always thoroughly enjoyed blowing stuff up. Um, that didn't work out too well. And I was thinking about getting out at the time, but I wasn't ready to hang up the uniform because being a soldier is something I had always dreamed of, of doing. And I had a, a lot of pride in that and still do. Um, and then I remember I, uh, in the military, I, I, in the army, I went to uh, on the what's called NORAX, this Norwegian troop exchange that's mm -hmm. done every year between Minnesota and Norway, where they take a handful of troops from Minnesota, send them to Norway, and vice versa. And I was selected to go to Norway in 2010, um, and absolutely loved that. But I met some people from the Air Force, and the Air Force people, like, we're getting, you know, like our platoon sergeant was from the army and we're getting like marched around this and that and air force like, man, we don't do this. And I remember talking to some of them and they, they really, uh, you know, they really enjoyed what they did with the air force. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to reach out to, uh, uh, her name's Alicia Wilkins and I'm going to reach out to her and see if she does like the air force and stuff. And she did. And she set me up with a recruiter and I went and talked to the recruiter and, I thought she was just dishing out all these, you know, uh, everyone hears stories about recruiters and lying and, uh, you know, all these dirty recruiter lies that she's like, oh, yeah, you're going to be, you know, home just about every night and basically no annual training and, like, you know, deployments are basically voluntary. And, and your this army and, brain is going, these are all lies. And you're going to be staying in a hotel if you do go somewhere. And, yeah, I'm like, God, you are just, you're just, like, just a dirty, lying recruiter. Um <laughs> And I'm like, well, I'm sitting if, here with this many years of experience going, all of that is true. Exactly. And, and I, I'm like, well, if even one of these comes true, it's, it's an upgrade from my, my current situation sure. with the army, especially with looking at starting a business and everything. Um, I'm like, okay, I can, I, I, I can do that. So I, I enlisted as, as a medic with the, uh, the air force. Uh, I would have liked to try and do something else like, you know, be air crew or something, but just taking time away to go back to, you know, the, basically the trade sure, school of, of the military school. Yeah. with starting a business it just doesn't work. And medic was just a, basically a straight through trans uh, transition. Um, but shortly after joining the air force, I realized that she wasn't lying to me at all, that all this stuff was true. Mm -hmm. um, so you joined a specific unit, you, you joined our medical group and then you joined kind of the more, I don't want to call them more infantry, but you, you joined a different branch of our medical group Correct. that is supposed to do search, rescue, and recovery on domestic operations. Right? Correct. I originally joined, I wanted to be a flight medic on a C-130, and then just, uh, so I started out with the uh, 
the unit called the 109th AES, uh, mm -hmm. Aromatically right. Evacuation uh, uh, S. Um, it's amazing how fast you... Squadron. Squadron, that's it. It's amazing how fast uh, some of the acronyms and, and stuff. Uh, like the other day, I couldn't remember the, the unit that I was with. I'm like, oh, geez, I, how do... Someone was asking me. I'm like, I... I uh, I sound like a stolen valor person where they ask what unit were you with and I'm like uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember the one in camouflage um, exactly um, so started off wanting to do that and then uh, quickly realized that uh, I I don't have the time for this and and thankfully Air Force is much more flexible than the at least my units with the Army were as far as like okay that's not working for you Wolf try and find you a, a better home and. Being in the clinic at the uh, at the, the medical group uh, didn't interest me at all. Um, you know, I like being in the field and being in the suck, getting Not dirty, a sitter stiller. doing cool stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And so they talked to me about what's called the surf, and I'm like, you know, what is that? S U R F. What what's that? And they're like, ah, basically you're going to be like rappelling and like you know climbing through rubble and all that. I'm like, oh, that sounds that sounds pretty awesome. Um, and so surf was C-E-R-F. It's the most military thing in the world, which is an acronym within an acronym. If only we would figure out how to do something like that. Exactly. Yep. So the C stands for C-Burny, which is chemical, nuclear, biological, radiological, and high-yield explosive. Uh, and so that's the C in surf. Uh, and then so it's the uh, C-Burny Enhanced Response Force Protection or Package. package. Yeah. Um, and in other words, it's a lot of folks with a lot of stuff to do a real specialized mission if something big and bad happens. Correct. Out in the civilian sector. As I described it, it's that we were we were the group that was created probably after response to 9-11, um, where if something like 9-11 but worse happened, uh, some people that don't necessarily make the best choices in life... Uh, <laughs> are the ones that go in there, you know, like if, if 9-11 happened with, you know, a dirty bomb where it's radiological, right. biological attack, um, some guys got to go put on a suit and go in there and look at it and go, man, I hope this suit made by the lowest bidder the government could find is, is going to keep me safe. And, uh, um, yeah, let's let's uh, let's effing do it, yeah. you know. And that's uh, let's go save some people. Exactly, and, yeah. and you know, so it's involved like you know, a lot of like you know, using heavy demolition tools to to breach through concrete and to do repelling and you know, shoring up buildings that are potentially collapsed. Uh, thankfully, never had to use. Um, we never had to deploy in that capacity because I always said that if we did deploy, it was an extremely bad day for yep. a lot of people. For sure. Um, yeah, I did that up until uh, I got out in January of 2021. Yeah, so a little bit over a year ago. Um, and here you are. Yep. As still not a sitter stiller, but you are a distiller. Correct. I've been a working distiller. that pun in since we started. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, no, that's 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 very good. Not a sitter stiller or sitter stiller, but a distiller. You can that's put good. it on the wall in here. Um, so. What did you learn from your military experience that um, allowed you to become successful where you are here? Really good question. Um, I learned a lot about myself. I guess that was one of the important things. I was always a confident person, but a confident idiot, I guess you could say. Um, and I'm going to use that, a confident idiot. Yep. Uh, there's nothing worse than a confident idiot. Um, being being dumb is okay. Being an idiot is okay. Not everyone is is you know Stephen Hawking and and, and really smart. Uh, one of the most dangerous things is a, a confident idiot that just, they're just going to go out and do stupid stuff. Um, and uh, so the army, uh, especially because you know that's what molded me in basic training and deploying and, and all of that. Uh, Air Force, I've absolutely uh, uh, played a role in that as well. Um, taught me a lot about myself and what I was capable of and just how to act and get stuff done, um, how to focus, um, just, you know, basically who I am. Um, took away a lot of fear in my life, fear of unknown and uncertainty, even to this day, 
13, 13-ish years later, when I go to do something that I think is scary, I think back to, you know, stuff that I thought was pretty scary in basic training. You know, we had a, what's, what's called, a, I don't know if they still do it. We had a, a combatives, um, you know, basically it's, it's um, entry level, how to grapple in, in basic training. It's basically, as the drill sergeants told us, just enough, we teach you just enough to get your ass kicked at the bar, you, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And give you the, uh, give you give the confidence, confidence to do it. Yep, you're a confident idiot uh, to go think you uh, can take on the world, and sure. then you find out a lot of people are a lot tougher than you are. Um, but uh, part of it was what's called a clinch drill, which is you've got to go and try and like you know get a, a certain like grab onto uh, your drill sergeant in, in certain ways to where you can uh, basically uh, at least hold on to them in a position where they can't hurt you easily. Uh, basically, in the army, it's you know give a chance for your buddy to come along and. And, and help you out. Um, and the clinch drill, uh, the drill sergeants were talking this up for a long time and, you know, it's Fort Benning with a bunch of males and, you know, they're like, oh, you know, these, these are big dudes. And, you know, like, oh, private, I'm waiting on the clinch drill. I'm, you know, we're gonna put on the boxing gloves and we're, we're gonna knock some of you out, you know? We're gonna break some of your noses and stuff. I'm like, man, they're just, they're just talking this up to scare us. They're just going to give us little, you know, little love taps and everything. And they're just going to let us get the clinch and everything. And the first like five minutes of starting that combatives with a clinch drill, I knew I was very wrong. Uh-huh. Uh, some kids' noses got broke. A few You're of them got knocked confident. out. Uh, a lot of bloody noses. And I got to go up against, uh, you know, the the biggest drill sergeant. That's what I wanted to. It's like that biggest challenge. And he came at me just swinging as hard. They were all swinging as hard as they could, but like I was, he hit me a couple times really good. And it was just, I don't like this. I'm like, I'm afraid I'm going to get knocked out, but I have to, I have to, to go up and, and secure that, uh, that hold on him. Otherwise I will fail at this. Right. Um, and I did it. And, you know, I still think back to that. I was terrified. Um, so, I mean, he's, Beating the hell out of me. Yeah. And, uh, um, but thinking back to stuff like that definitely helps. Um, you know, the, the military, uh, a member of the press asked me this like five, five years ago. And I they said, what, out of all the jobs that you've done, like I said, I've done construction, IT, medical, um, out of all the jobs you've done, which job has prepared you most for uh, your job here as a small business owner, as a distiller? And I told him without a doubt, it was the army. Um, I said, how did that prepare you? And I said, well, number one, learning how to work, you know, that I can work 36 hours straight without taking, basically without taking a break, um, be out in the cold, hungry, um, you know, sleep deprived. I know I'm capable of that. Now, I, I don't think I've hit 36 hours here straight before, but I've gone over 24 hours straight working here many times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an 18 hour day is no big deal for me at all. I don't like it, but it's not a big deal. Thankfully, the army, you know, showed me what I'm capable of in, in that regard. And for relatively little pay, I reinvest all of my money for the most part back into the company. And the army and military gave me that, that ability to do that, knowing that I could. And uh, also the, just the stubbornness that, yep, guess we got to figure out a way. So the, that stubbornness and that ability to just kind of embrace the suck and work through it, work hard to achieve that goal and then have the confidence to get in there. But you and I, prior to the podcast starting here, we talked a lot about the people that work for you here. Mm -hmm. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit about another thing that the military taught you that has made you successful here. So uh, for those of you that, uh, tuned me out at the beginning. I've been talking with Tyson Schnitker from the 133rd Medical Group, formerly, um, and he is now the owner, co-owner of, um, of uh, Scalvin Distillery, and we will be right back. Stick around. Hey, this is Jeff Sprick, the Retention Office Manager at the 133rd Airlift Wing. First off, we want to thank you for your service and your hard work. Serving isn't always easy, and what you do is very meaningful, so thank you. If you're serving or you're coming up on your ETS, please reach out to discuss options. And if you're accessing this podcast by Facebook, 
there's a great resource linked above for you. Phone number is 612-713-2032. 612-713-2032. Thanks. Hey, welcome back to the second half of the podcast. I'm joined again by Tyson Schnitker. We're here at Scalvin Distillery in Brooklyn Park. Um, it's the middle of the work day. It's not even lunch yet, so we're having a great glass of water. Unfortunately. I know. Um, and I actually have to go to the office after this, so um, I can't even get a to-go cup. Kidding. Um, right before we left for the break, you talked a little bit about some of the skills that you got from the Army. Hard work, um, a degree of stubbornness, recognition of the uh, confident idiot, and understanding yourself. Correct. But now you're running a business. You have um, employees that you manage, mm -hmm. um, a sense of customer service, and a focus on really, really good stuff here. Absolutely. How did you learn how to lead from the military that is was specific to the military? That people in selling cars or um, working in a medical office don't get. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it was looking at my leaders and recognizing qualities that I either wanted to be like or qualities that I didn't want to be like. Uh, those bad leaders that I spoke about earlier, um, those influenced my leadership style uh, every bit as much as the good leaders because I don't want to be like that person. Um, so what makes a good leader? Very tough question. Um, you have to really, I mean, really, really tough question. It almost comes down to the, the individual event that, you know, or, or situation that um, you're having to lead. It's you have to understand the capabilities of your people, both what they know they're capable of and what they don't know they're capable of, uh, what their limits are. Uh, people are like an engine. They have a red line. You need, to, you need to discover what those people are capable of, what their red line is. Um, maybe you exceed that red line a little bit, but then you recognize that and you pull back. You can't run an engine at red line, uh, you know, maximum revolutions, uh, and expect it to last. The same sure. thing as a person. You can't. How no matter who they are. How are you doing with that when it comes to your employees here? or even when you were in the military, recognizing when somebody was getting to that red line. That's where you just have to be a good listener and just very, you have to be doing the exact same work that they are. Um, you know, here I'm, a lot of times I'm washing dishes and I'm washing dishes as fast as I humanly can. And sometimes they're making drinks as fast as they can or doing prep as fast as they can and being in there with them. That's what I always enjoyed about my position as just an E-5 with the, the Army and then the Air Force is that I was in the, you know, in the, the trench with those troops um, and really seeing what they're going through on a day-to-day -day basis. But you have to be, it's that fine line between working them too much, working them, you know, hard and at that red line and then just also knowing where the appropriate level below that uh, that that limit is um, we need to know that if we need to we can operate at this level but that this is a comfortable level where employees are happy work gets done and it's a it's a truly a good balance and it's hard to say what that is and how to discover that so let's look at January of 2022 okay and how we've been operating for the last two years mm -hmm. and some of the struggles that we've had in the military and that you've had probably owning and operating a business where a lot of the personal interactions, the time with people mm -hmm. has been so limited. Absolutely. We, we can't see half of our faces anymore. Most of the meetings we do are digital. How do you overcome that when you're leading people? Improvise, adapt, overcome. It's, that it's sounds a, like a military thing. It definitely sounds like a military thing. Um, it's definitely hard. I mean, just even from interviewing people and having a mask on, you know, both parties, not being able to see truly what their facial expression is, body language. Um, and, and people are already uncomfortable enough typically going in for an interview. Uh, 
because a lot of people just don't interview well, and they've got that you know 15 to 30 minutes to try and make an impression on me, but then I've also got only that amount of time to try and decide if I want that person working for me, and it's it's very difficult just even on that end of things. One of, the, um, one of the, okay, I'm sorry. But then everyone's got their own comfort level with COVID and and everything. And it's, it's one of those things where me as a leader, I can't decide what makes somebody else comfortable and what doesn't. Um, it's something where we have a very open environment here where I tell everyone if, you know, if there's something that makes you uncomfortable, let me know. If, if we like to have fun and tell jokes, just the same as anybody else, but I do understand that everybody has limits. If we push one of your limits, if we went too far on a joke or playing around or you know, we, we touched a subject that shouldn't be touched. Let me know because that's the last thing that we want to do. Did you learn that sense of empathy and caring for other human being in the Army or the Air National Guard? There's a right answer I, here. I believe it would be in the uh, the Minnesota Air National Guard. Yeah, I like no, that. I don't, I don't know where that came from. I, I think it's from uh, it's from when I, uh, I hit my head a bunch of years ago. It just <laughs> kind of popped in there or something. Fair enough. Hey, how many employees do you have now? Um, I think we've got five right now, and then we are potentially hiring two more. Um, they're going through kind of a, a, a basically an industry first first date where they come in, work a shift. We see if it's a good fit both for both parties, mm -hmm. that they mesh well with us, but then we also mesh well with them. Kind of a tribe before you buy. Correct. Yep. Uh, you and I were talking before the podcast started, and you you looked really hard at healthcare benefits for your employees absolutely and taking good care of them paying them an honest wage uh that's a hard decision to make as a business owner where absolutely you're looking at a bottom line why does it make sense for you to offer good things to your employees from a business perspective it doesn't um it's it's a sign that i don't have any investors it's my wife and i we don't have anyone pulling strings and saying uh we need to be better with our money um, and running a good business doesn't always mean being a good person. Um, business is very zeros and ones. It's Excel spreadsheets, money coming in, money going out. That's mm -hmm. running a good business. And then being a good person is, you know, you're, you're giving away all your money. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're Mother Teresa, um, and that's where we try and strike a balance. Um, I want my employees, if they get sick, to be able to go and get whatever it is treated, be it if they hurt their finger, hurt their toe, um, or they need, you know, mental health. Uh, all of us at times in our life need to go talk to somebody. And unfortunately in our country right now, it's accepted that basically you go bankrupt if you get sick. Uh, and a lot of people can't afford it. I'm terribly sorry for my alarm. That's okay. Uh, I thought I had my phone As long silent. as it still doesn't blow up. It you shouldn't. You keep all the timers on your watch. It shouldn't. Um, I'm going to stop that instead of snoozing it. My apologies. Because um, I turned my sound back on uh, during the break. Um, it's the people I have working for me, they don't wear a suit and tie. They're not, you know, they're, they don't, uh, I think some of them have degrees, but you know, they're, they're not working in a corporate office, but just because they're not there in a corporate office doesn't mean they're not every bit as, pro as a professional. They've been spending 10 or more years typically in their field as, you know, bartending and, and food and beverage as professionals trying to be the absolute best that they can. Uh, I think it's time in our, in our country that we recognize, doesn't matter what you're doing, if you're trying to be the best that you can be in that industry, that you are treated as a professional. I don't care if you're cleaning toilets, if you're trying to do the best, and I'd, I'd say that's the most important person in this entire building. Mm -hmm. So the custodians that come in every night and clean. We all uh, realized that that was super important over the last two oh, years, yeah. where suddenly cleanliness was just not just something that somebody else did and we took for granted. Oh, yeah. Well, if, if, if I don't show up for two weeks, I mean, like when I got COVID back in October, I wasn't here for 10 days and the business got by. Everything was re relatively fine. You don't have your custodial team come in for three days. You know. Everybody notices. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's people that are working hard, no matter what their, their job is, uh, need to be taken care of just as much as 
you know, people working at, you know, higher up positions at uh, corporations. So what's harder, leading people or making vodka? Leading people, definitely. Making vodka is very straightforward. It's just very long days. Um, people is, each person is different. Uh, each situation is different. Um, it's, it's sometimes you have to have that, that extreme level of, of empathy and, and caring about people and that comes first. And sometimes the mission mm -hmm. comes beyond that. Um, sometimes something just has to get done. I don't care what your feeling is towards it. It needs to be done. Same thing in the military and same thing in the civilian life. Sure. Um, you know, uh, toilet has to be plunged right now, uh, you know, and don't care what you got going on. That's top priority. And, you know, other times, like, yeah, you know, I can say, hey, let's let's talk about it. You know, like, I know we got all this work we got to do, but I can tell something's been on your mind. Yeah. You know, you're not, you're not the same person I, I normally see. That good ability to shift gears between emergency mode and everyday mode. And, and yeah. the everyday mode, we ought to be taking good care of people and having that sense of, of, collegiality and empathy and and how we do things absolutely every so often you know for a fire chief every so often you got to throw a white helmet on oh yeah uh, for a cop every so often somebody's got to be in charge and run the incident it, it just there's two different sides you got to know when to flip that light switch that's the and that's you, the trick though, and you got to be able to flip it just as quick as the light goes on and, and turn it off okay so second half here we're gonna play quick answer I ask you a question Engineers, when I, when I interview engineers, they're terrible at this because they like to analyze it. So we'll see how you do. I will give you a question. you got to answer it in one word, maybe two, and then we move right on to the next one. Sounds good. Okay, you ready? Place on earth you'd most like to visit? Japan. You've been there twice already. I know. Okay. Beer or wine? Beer. Run DMC or Limp Bizkit? Oh, run DMC. Attaboy. Uh, best pizza topping? Just one word, huh? You can go five. I can go five. Uh, I'm going to make a lot of enemies with this uh, uh, jalapeno and pineapple. Okay. Weirdest garnish <laughs> for an alcohol-based drink? Weirdest garnish. Um, weird can be good and it can be bad. That's a really tough answer. And you're already over five words. I know. So. Um uh, We'll just say garnish that needs to go away, clothespin. Okay. Person you'd most like to meet? Give me an uncomfortable pause. It's going to need to be edited here. Um, I'd say probably my, uh, you know, my grandfather. Uh, the one that was uh, the medic in, in World War II, so I awesome. could uh, get to know him better. Last one. Best video ever shared on Tosh.0? Oh. Uh, definitely the one of me on the, the repelling uh, tower. <laughs> Unpa unpack that one real quick. Exactly. <laughs> uh, oh, talk about it. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so this is when I was deploying in uh, 2011. It was May of 2011. Uh, my unit, the detachment from Anoka, uh, Charlie Battery, um, we had a couple, uh, I believe they were air assault instructors and, you know, rope masters. Yeah. And we were at the repelling tower, Camp Ripley, which is a 45-foot tower, not terribly tall as far as the towers go. And we were doing regular repelling, you know, where we take a piece of rope and create a, a harness with it and then uh, hope it holds and then go repelling. And I've repelled a bunch of times before. I hate heights, but I've repelled a bunch of times before and no big deal. Well, then they started saying, well, who wants to learn how to do it uh, Aussie style, so Australian, where you go face first? And my life, and especially military career, that sounds awesome, and I want to do it. Like throwing hand grenades, shooting machine guns, like tanks, aircraft, all of that's awesome. Heck yeah, I want to do Aussie-style repelling, even though I'm terrified of heights. So I did it once successfully off of what's called the Huey rail on the side, which is a different method of, of repelling. So when you're on a, a rail, basically it's like a metal bar that sticks out from the side. Yeah. Um, you start out face first and you, you slowly lean and kind of uh, um, let out that, that, that line. Um, and when I'm repelling, 
I hate heights, like I said. When I feel that I'm secured to that rope, when I truly feel that that rope has me, no big deal. Um, and when you start out on the rail and you can just let out your own line as you gradually lean forward, you can feel that rope go and cool, you get yourself to about a 45 degree angle to the, the ground and then you jump and let out line and uh, then uh, uh, you know uh, slow yourself down before you uh, 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 impact the earth. And it was cool, um, really cool. Um, and then they said, okay, who wants to like do the running down the wall thing? I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> and Not a sitter stiller. Exactly. Yep. And so this was different. So up at the top of the tower with my toes sticking off the edge, and said, stare at the horizon and look forward. And, uh, you know, it's thankfully it was captured by a couple different cameras and I put it up on YouTube and then Tosh stole it. And I didn't get paid a dime for that different, uh, different story, different day. But, uh, you know, like I'm up there and I remember my legs shaking and trembling and, you know, trying to lean forward, but I can't feel that rope. There's slack in the line. I looked over at the sergeant. I'm like, hey, sergeant, like, you know, can we get the rope tightened up a little bit? He's like, needs to have slack in the lines so that when you make that transition, it's like a little bit of a free fall. It's yeah. like kind of sucks you to the wall uh, and then you go down. And he said, you know, my legs are shaking. He said, stare at the horizon, you know, and take a step forward. And I took a deep breath and I heard someone say, you know, trust your equipment, you're good. And next thing you know, I'm like coming to at the bottom of this tower. Um, I'm looking around. There's a person up at the top yelling at me. It's army thing. He's just yelling at me for not following instructions, but I couldn't understand him. And there's all these people around me and I don't really know who they are. You fainted, didn't you? Yes, uh, passed out uh, at the top, looking at like frame by frame of just basically my legs buckling uh, at the top and then it impacted my head uh, pretty hard. Um, and I, I came to with total amnesia. I didn't remember being in the army um, I didn't know if I'd been married or not, um, and, uh, our lieutenant had to call my wife at her work, uh, once I was able to, you know, spit it out who she was, where she worked, and, and stuff like that, um, but he's like, yeah, um, Mrs. Schnitker, um, I'm, you know, lieutenant, uh, so-and-so with the Minnesota Army National Guard, your husband was in an accident, and, like, that cut out. Oh, my. And, if, like, a few seconds later, he's like, it's, he's okay, he's okay. Um, but I had total amnesia. I didn't remember um, anything to do with that. And uh, um, I don't regret doing that in a heartbeat. I, I've had a couple lingering of effects from it, uh, which are very minor. Um, but it was, a, it was a cool experience, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Well, hopefully it stays off Tosh.0 if it goes bad. Exactly. Man. Okay, your menu here has had mm -hmm. some really interesting drinks including an ink teeny yeah. squid ink wasabi and akavit who designs that stuff and i mean you and i talked a little bit about how purposeful you are mm -hmm. in the design of the place and how committed you are to just being here for your customers you only let 40 in at a time correct um i read your covid protocols and they're like super strict so that your customers feel safe mm -hmm. but who comes up with some of the creative things uh, everybody does. Yeah. The, uh, the ink teeny was a um, cocktail that didn't last on the menu long. It was created by uh, who was supposed to be our first bartenders. We hired a couple of, uh, couple of uh, uh, women from the bar industry uh, in uh, 2019, and then we brought them to Japan so that they could see the, the cocktail experience that we got there. Um, and then when COVID came, they decided to get out of the industry. Um, but that was one of the drinks they came up with. It was Do a really cool drink creativity and all of your 100 percent yeah how do you um, do that i just uh there's no handcuffs here um the drinks have to be good they have to also have a a level of, of visual uh, appearance yeah. um they have to look good smell good taste good they have to one of the hardest things that we do with drinks here, and, and one of the difficulties is that with the Minnesota distillery, all of the alcohol has to be our five products, vodka, rum, akavit, habanero-infused rum, and bourbon. Those are our five products. We can't use a liqueur off the shelf. I can't use scotch. I can't use tequila. I can't use, um, you know, uh, Aperol, anything like that. Sure. I can't even use most bitters hmm. uh, because they're considered uh, outside beverage alcohol. Um, and... So that's the difficulty. But the other difficulty is that with what we do here, how do I take it up 
I don't want to be average over here. I want to be above average. And how do we take a cocktail and make it above average? So you were talking about your, you know, we business business side of things, military side of things. We talk about continuous improvement and mm -hmm. the process that it takes to get there. And you boiled it down before we got on the podcast here on what you tell folks that work for you when you send them to another distillery yeah. or another tasting room. Another bar or anything. I, yes. What do you ask them? I usually tell them, give me, you know, two or three things that we do better than they do. Um, but also tell me five things that they do better than I do. And the way I look at it is, is, is business, and I don't mean this in a wrong way, but business is like war. You have winners and losers. Uh, the, the winners go home with a little bit of money in their pocket and a, a business the next day, the losers go home without a business and broke. And if I look at what we do here as that we do the best, no one else is going to touch us. Um, that's like going into war and being at an outpost in Afghanistan and saying, well, you know, the, uh, the, the Taliban have got nothing on us. We've got night vision and, you know, optics that and all arrogance, this stuff. Right? But you have to look at what the Taliban does well, is that you're in their backyard. Um, the dumb Taliban, for the most part, got killed long ago. The ones that would stand up there and try and get into a, you know, like a Wild West shootout with us. Um, those guys got killed a long time ago. And the ones that are there, now we're not there anymore, but the ones that we were fighting there at the end, they've grown up with our presence. They've seen us every single day for 20 years. Um, we've just been going there on rotations every, you know, for a year, every four or five years or whatever. Right. Um, they know us better than we do and they know our capabilities and recognizing that these, for the most part, and I don't mean this in a bad way, uneducated, uh, mountain people, um, know they're, they're very smart and you can't underestimate, uh, the things that they do well. So it's an interesting tie to how you work with your folks to identify what you're doing well, mm -hmm. because that's an important thing. Everybody Correct. should know what you do really, really well. But then recognizing what another organization or group or another person mm -hmm. um, does better than you and just having that sense of humility, yeah. but also a sense of pride in what you're doing well. And that allows for a creative process here. Yeah, a lot of times you don't know what you're not doing well until someone tells you. Yeah. Uh, because it's very easy to look at yourself and go like, I'm awesome. Um, but the reality is there's, you know, you know, there's things that aren't awesome that we could improve on if someone would just tell us or look at it a little bit deeper. Yep. Okay, so here we are. We're at your distillery. I might as well do our drinking question. Sounds good. Here we go. Uh, Doc, <clears throat> I'll just call you that today another doc i appreciate it dr mary edwards walker you know who she is i don't wow surprised she's the first woman to receive the congressional medal medal of honor oh dang i should know that civil war veteran um and i use air quotes on veteran because she was actually working for the army in a civilian ca capacity because they wouldn't let her join she was captured accused of being a spy when the war ended she ran for public office before women could even vote Pushed for women's rights, and finally was really active in the temperance movement. Oh, I'm sure you'd get along. She lost me well. at the temperance one, I but know. everything before that was awesome. So here's the drinking question. If she came in here for a water, which is what I'm drinking, what would you serve to her to change her anti-alcohol stance? Well, first, if she, if she wanted water or some other non-alcoholic beverage, I would, we would do the best we would serve her the best water or the best NA beverage that we are capable of. Um, you know, we don't look at anything as like anything beneath us. You know, it's, there's, uh, there's too many beverages like that's snobs a, that's and such alcohol. such a good business owner response. No, no, there's, there's, there's so many, like, there's so many, like, even unfortunately people in the bar industry yeah. where like, you know, if, if you like an apple teeny, you know, like it's looked at as like kind of a tacky drink, no offense to anybody, but like, who cares? That's what makes that person happy. Mm -hmm. uh, like my favorite two two cocktails are Jack and Coke. That's my relaxed cocktail, and then also it's a Miami Vice. It's a strawberry daiquiri and pina colada, blended, frozen. Uh, they're awesome. And I love like you know who does not like a Miami Vice? Honestly, <laughs> who doesn't? Yeah, like communists. Exactly, communists. Um, so what would you serve her 
to change your mind. So if, if she was open to drinking, um, you know, whatever someone's reasons for not drinking are just fine with me. Um, and I'd never persuade anyone to drink that doesn't want to drink. Uh, but if she wanted to say, okay, impress me, uh, show me what I'm missing out on. Uh, I would ask her what, what her favorite flavors are. Does she want something carbonated or still? Does she like bitter? Does she like sweet? Does she like fruity or, or tart? Or, um, and I would start going down that checklist to find out what, what I could potentially make that she would enjoy. Um, one question we get in here all the time, and I, I, I understand why people ask it, um, but I, I really hate when people ask it. And it's, they say, well, what do you like? What's your favorite thing on the menu? Well, sure. my favorite thing does, you know, might not be your favorite thing. Like I might, I, might like to, I might be the kid that eats paste, right? You know, that eats Elmer's glue. Um, do you really want to ask what I like? Or what better is say, okay, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in the mood for something bitter, but a little bit of sweetness. Um, I'm okay to like carbonation, but I don't like pineapple. Uh, what would you suggest? And I might say, okay, yeah, we have, we have this. I think you might like it. Um, my, my follow-up question to this, and you kind of mm -hmm. answered it, is what would you talk about to keep the conversation going? It just sounds like, hey, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, yep. what do you really, really like? And she'd probably give you an answer. It probably would come down to a nice, cool, tall glass of water or something. But, exactly. Um, okay. And that, that question I'd, I'd try and ask her is yeah. I'd just say, I like trying to understand why someone thinks the way they do. Uh, like, you know, Michael Scott, why, like, why are you the way you are? Whatever mm -hmm. he says to Toby. Um, and I, I'd, I'd want to find out why, and I understand the, like, the temperance movement, everything that led up to that. We had some, you know, dark history in America revolving alcohol, of course, uh, yeah. both during and uh, before and after uh, prohibition. Um, you know, try and find out why she's the way she is. In the last couple seconds we got left here, what do you miss about the military, and what would you do differently? I really miss the the camaraderie, especially like the the when you're in the suck, when you're just long day, it just sucks, and it's cold, and you've got whatever mission and you're there with the people that really, really make a difference and that you really truly enjoy being around. Uh, military, you're sometimes with people day and night, nonstop, and you really learn who you like and who you don't like. Um, I, I really miss that. Uh, I also miss blowing stuff up and doing cool stuff <laughs> a lot. Yep. Um, well, since the civilian world, could I get paid to throw hand grenades? Uh, I did that and got paid for it. Uh, as a 40-year-old man, I still think that's pretty, pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Um, what would I change? Um, if I could just literally change anything, I would make the military a little bit more like it was when I enlisted, which is more in the field training, less computer-based training, less computer files. When I first joined, your training file was a physical document. Mm -hmm. And you could go through and check off that this training was completed, just initial, 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 done. Um, I'm definitely not saying that sometimes training was signed off as being completed, even though it was never done. Uh, so that way you actually had time to do real training, uh, trying militaries, uh, trying to make sure the bad guy gets killed and trying to make sure you don't get killed. That's what it all comes down to. It's yeah. why you're wearing camouflage. I remember the days of the paper stuff, and it really was a facilitated conversation between you and another human being yeah. instead and of a computer screen and a mouse. And sometimes that needs to happen, but yeah. then also going and updating, say, 20 people's training files could possibly only take 20 minutes. Uh, sometimes it takes 20 minutes just to log on to a computer, um, and then that system is down, and I, I do not miss that end of things. I, I think the military does need to get back to its roots of making sure that, uh, and it's, you know, that the military is performing its job of 
keeping America and its service members safe um, and making, you know, keeping the military and it's a, the, the part of the military that we all know is, is why it's there, but making the military, uh, keeping it as, as the most lethal force in, in the world. Um, and you can't do that with a bunch of computer-based training. Yeah. Service comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. Correct. And careers aren't necessarily 20 years. Um, as we wrap it up, I wanted to just take a minute to say, you know, to you and anyone else that's listening that has done some time and served their country, thanks. Thanks for serving. Thanks for what you're doing now. No problem. Thank hey, you. I mean, this, this is such a cool place, but just the heart that you are bringing to the people that you're employing and the people that you serve here, you can just see that sense of service. So thanks for your service. No problem at all. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, I'd also like to say thanks to Kyle Sovdi, Amanda Ritchie, Sarah Brown Jager, and uh, Lindsay Rickle for helping people. me do some research prior to coming and interviewing you. And as always, thanks to Amy Lovegren for your expertise and support in getting these podcasts out. And Tyson, uh, last but not least, thanks for joining me on Beneath the Wing. Hey, no problem I'm at all. I'm looking it's, forward to coming back here during drinking hours. It's been a pleasure sharing my experience. And uh, yeah, anyone thinking about enlisting, do I have like two minutes? You got yeah. one. I got one. Anyone thinking of enlisting, Take those experiences, even if you're infantry in the army and just a door kicker, understand you get leadership ability with those people. Big companies are willing to pay good money for leadership, public speaking. Uh, take it and run with it. Tyson, next time we need a recruiter, we're bringing you back. <laughs> take care, everybody, and we'll see you next time on Beneath the Wing. Thank you.